I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone. This is a very, very special episode. I want to welcome all of you to the one-year anniversary of the Recovery Bites podcast. Um, I am incredibly proud of it. I, myself, have learned so much from the amazing people that I have sat with over this past year. And it it has just truly been an honor. And it has been an honor to try and help other people that feel lost in the recovery process, any supports that feel lost. I just, I just want to say thank you, everyone. I also want to say for the one-year anniversary, I'm having my very first guest, who is Carolyn Costin. And it just feels right. Carolyn was my mentor, my teacher, my first guest, and now she's the one-year anniversary. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Recovery Bites. This is quite an episode. First of all, I'm sitting here with my mentor, my very first guest, Carolyn Costin. And Carolyn is on today because it's the one-year anniversary of this podcast, and she was my first guest, so I wanted to bring her back. Carolyn, say hello to everyone. Wow, one year. Hi, everybody. It's great to be back here. What a year. Right? What a year. And you know what? You and I are going to talk about it on the episode today. Before we do, Carolyn, I know that you, that I can't imagine that that there's someone out there that doesn't know you, but there are people that don't, so can you introduce yourself to everyone? Sure. Uh, okay, well, uh, you said my name, but I guess I should repeat it, Carolyn Costin, and uh, I've been a therapist for, since, uh, this. it's so bizarre to say, so, licensed, I think, in 1979, so I have been treating eating disorders for just so many years, it blows my mind, over 40 years, and uh, I mean, just a little bit about me, I was in private practice, I ran hospital groups, and I um, decided that's not the place for people to get better. And I opened the first residential treatment center for eating disorders in the U.S. And, um, and then when people were discharging and, and they weren't quite ready, there was no day treatment in, except connected to hospitals. So I opened the first day, freestanding day treatment. It's weird when I talk about this in the U.S. And, uh, and uh, along the way, I've written a few books. Probably the most popular is my Eight Keys to Recovery from an Eating Disorder. I wrote with a former client turned therapist, Gwen Grab. Um, we wrote that book and a workbook. And now um, I uh, am certifying, you know, I think some of those things like residential treatment was a real game changer. And I now I'm 
training, supervising, and certifying eating disorder coaches, which I really hope is, and I think is going to be a game changer in the treatment support services. Um, so that's what I'm doing now, and I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I do too. And one of the things, just from my own experience, because I have recovery coaches at my center, that it's so it's it's such a powerful tool is that right now and please everybody hear me everyone has different experiences some of my clients are struggling with php and iop online because it's a lot of time on the computer and so people are creating alternative situations with food support with you know with portioning and things like that and so it is just, I, I think the recovery coaching is an invaluable, invaluable part of the recovery process, really wherever you are in the process, whether you're at PHP, IOP, or in regular outpatient therapy. Yeah, I mean, some coaches are working with families to help them before the kid gets really bad, you know, initial stages of an eating disorder. And the coach comes in and helps the family do FBT because otherwise it's the parents at every meal. And so that's been interesting all the way to someone in their fifties who's had multiple treatments, you know, not wanting to go back into hospital again, resources have run out and a coach moves in and lives in with the client for a while and helps them set up a daily routine and have accountability. So it's, it's pretty astonishing. And, um, that's harder with COVID, but when people are vaccinated or wearing masks and being distant, they've been able to do it. If not that, then as you said, they were already trained to do support like meal support. So they're having meals. They're they're going into shopping centers with the person on their, you know, their phone through um hopefully a secure app like signal app or something, but going through and saying, you know, I'm having trouble and I should buy this, but I'm afraid to. And the coach is right there online with them, helping them shop. So it's been, you know, it was just good timing that I had a lot of coaches up and running when, uh, when, when this whole thing happened with COVID. One of the things that you and I were talking about earlier is just that COVID. Um, you and I can't believe that we're sitting here face to face, well, over Zoom, a year, <laughs> a year, a year ago, when we thought that we were going to be closed down for two weeks, go back. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. And I think, you know, we both talked about this whole idea of what reentry is, and people are starting to you know, re-enter and some parts of life are getting back to normal and opening up. But at the same time, if you catch the news or whatever, you're going to hear, oh, wait a second, maybe we shouldn't open up because there's problems in states like Minnesota. You know, there's the variants. So as we, it's sort of like expand and contract, expand and contract. And you and I were talking about it and we thought, wow, everybody is feeling this in one way or another, whether they're um, feeling a little bit like a little bit like me, which is I don't know that I'm quite ready to do all the stuff that people want me to do. Everyone knows I've been vaccinated. My family's vaccinated. My friends who are vaccinated are like, okay, when do we get together and let's go to this restaurant and I want to come down for a visit and let's go to Hawaii. And honestly, I, I said to my husband, Bruce, who you know, I said, 
why am I feeling not so excited about this? Why am I feeling a little bit hesitant? And I, I think that's a good thing for us to talk about. The, why is that, you know? I I agree with that 100%. I am experiencing something similar where I, and and again, everybody is different. There's no right or wrong. You have to listen to your own self. For me, eating inside a restaurant, and I'm also fully vaccinated, eating inside a restaurant frightens me. I have done it a few times outside though. And even then I was like, oh, am I doing the right thing? Like, what am I doing? You know, so it's, it's a complicated re-entry process and then add on top of it, somebody struggling with an eating disorder. So do you have any thoughts about what direction you want to go in with this conversation? Because, you know, you and I have talked about a few things prior and it's, it's a difficult it's it's complex. Well, I think the biggest thing for people out there is to really recognize that that's going on. Because if it was difficult for me for a minute to go, why am I so hesitant? And it's not just the mixed messages and the varying messages, at, you know, that change as new data comes about. You know, it's also once you've done something for a period of time. So, for example people, we know people with anorexia, for example, develop very specific um, sort of rituals or patterns quickly. It's, it, it looks as though their chemistry, you know, it's that whole set shifting idea where their temperament and everything is built to the fact that if they do something, uh, uh, you know, a couple times, two or three times, all of a sudden that's locked in and that's the pattern. I always use the example, if you take cheese off your sandwich one day, okay, you feel like, oh, okay, and then you take cheese off your sandwich the next day, the third day, you cannot have the cheese on your sandwich. And um, I think any of those kinds of things for that kind of temperamental client or client with that temperament, um, I think they need to look at it that way, that it's not just the information, it's the fact that I've established all these new sort of rituals for myself about what I'm doing in terms of staying home and like you said, not going to restaurants. So how do we move forward and break that? And at the same time, it's complicated by the fear of if you're very, very protective, and especially, and we talked about this a year ago, your temperament stuff, if you're perfectionistic about being um, protective, and you've been the one who's been, you know, just like totally careful and wiping off every package before it comes in, then it's going to be harder for you to break than it might be for someone else. And I think recognizing that and talking about that and, and trying to take um, small steps in that direction and acknowledging that, um, that it's okay to go lightly and it's okay if you're one of those people that doesn't feel like oh people are vaccinated let's go out to the restaurant and being okay with that because we all have to live with our own comfort zone so it's weird right it's just like treating an eating disorder how much do we challenge one of our clients to take steps and how much do we um acknowledge and uh, appreciate and let let be their their own particular needs of how fast or far they can go in this, you know? How much do you think the pandemic has had an impact? And by the way, that's a 
big question. Uh, because first of all, I don't even think we have any research that's been presented yet. Maybe there is that, that you're aware of, but how much have people with eating disorders? You know, there is some research. I don't, I couldn't cite it off the top of my head, but, and there's a, uh, an article about it that I think came out in the, um, the journal, not the treatment and prevention journal, the other, the, um, the AED journal. Um, eating disorder review. I think that's where it came out. But um, it, it's been interesting because treatment centers are full. I thought, who's going to be flying off and checking into a treatment center worried about COVID and everything? They're full. They're full with waiting lists. I also thought, who? that's residentials. I also thought, who's going to sign up and be on Zoom for hours a day in a IOP or day treatment? And how does that even work if you have to make your own food, you know, and, and bring it on Zoom and eat together? But again, uh, a lot of those programs have been full. And I think it's because a little bit what we were talking about, when you have something already that set you out of balance, and then you have something like a pandemic happen, the the height of anxiety and the and the and the height of go, turning to coping behaviors even if you thought even if you had been doing better was all exaggerated so people are signing up and doing things and you know really reaching out and hoping that that it helps and, and also if you're home alone anyway and you feel isolated being on zoom and being with people in in um in groups and things like that uh is has helped so many people. So there has been uh, an, an increase in people seeking treatment, which is, you know, in some ways not surprising. Well, another reason it's not surprising, let's give another kind of um, diagnosis, like someone with bulimia who's home. And before this, they were, maybe they were at college and now they had to come home. The college was shut down. They're doing college on Zoom. They're living with their parents but in close quarters where it's really hard to hide your behaviors, you know? And so then that all breaks open and then the parents are more in a situation where they're saying, well, you absolutely have to go get treatment. So there are different ways that it's come in that has made the need for treatment uh, and, and people who individuals seeking treatment increase. Well, also like, as you were saying, isolation, is a big hallmark problem. I'm going to use the word problem contributor when it comes to being in your eating disorder. And so many people have been isolated. I also know that, you know, you and I were talking about a few minutes ago, I have clients that are actually now more afraid to go out into the world. They're almost holding onto a bit of an agoraphobia diagnosis and 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 that's a that's a strong statement but they haven't been out in over a year they are you know they're concerned body image is really intense right now you know where there's so much talk on social media about i i'm embarrassed to say it but i have to because everyone's heard it the covid 15 and all of this stuff i was and just gonna say that well, people are saying the COVID-19. The COVID-19. And, no. and, and so I have clients now that are terrified to go out in the world 
because they are they they are afraid that they have gained weight during the pandemic. They are afraid that you know what their body image looks like. They also are getting a lot more body dysmorphia, more you know with their faces, with with other parts of their body. So it has really, really wreaked havoc on people that are struggling. Yeah, there's no doubt. I just heard that COVID-19 thing the other day. Someone said to me, you know, I think I've gained COVID-19. I went, oh, I can't believe I haven't heard that yet because uh, uh, it makes sense and people are concerned about it. And, you know, I mean, we treat it the same way we treated when people came back from school and said the freshman 15, you know, we uh, first you start with acceptance, you know, acceptance versus resistance. All of us have have had ways that we had to deal with coping you know and coping with being home and hey one of the one of the pleasures sitting around eating is you know what am i going to have for breakfast lunch and dinner what you know or what's my dessert or whatever or a lot of people talking about drinking more being at home so that's another thing but I think we have to give ourselves a break. I think the biggest thing that needs to be said, it, it's also mothers whose kids are on on, on Zoom or, or all the time or watching um, you know, cartoons or other shows on television and mom's feeling bad about it. And I just read an article, I think it was in the New York Times about, you know, um, give yourself a break, you know? And I think we all need to do that a little bit because who knew what was gonna happen? But I do think it's um, addressable and I would address those things just like I do um, if those kind of things happened before a pandemic. And that's first with acceptance and and then with what small step do you want to take not related to, oh, you got to change your weight because we never want that to be a focus. It's more about what's your relationship with food that you would like to get back to or that you would like to have that you just feel like you're not having? What are you doing that you feel like is maybe self-destructive or is just taking the place of other self-care behaviors that you would like to do, but you haven't been able to do and start small, start picking one small thing to work on and um, not having it be like, oh, I have to go back to whatever it was I was doing before. You know, I think it is going to take steps. It is for me. I was thinking, I don't really think I know how to drive that well. I haven't been driving for a year. And I thought, I better get in my car and drive a little bit because anything that we haven't done for a year, it's... Um, it's going to give us a little bit of a of a startle or a or an anxiousness to go back to doing something that we haven't done for a long time. You and I were also talking about how trauma gets stuck in our bodies. This has been a collective trauma that the entire world is going through and also for a year, over a year now, the entire world whether they're paying attention to the news or not, it's always being talked about. So what is it that you think about with tra- with the trauma that people are experiencing as a result? I mean, I know when I'm going about my morning making my coffee and my breakfast and the news is on and, and I, I, I'm used to hearing yeah. the statistics of COVID for, for people that are passing, people that are getting it. So we are all experiencing a bit of a collective trauma. Do you have any thoughts? 
Yeah, I just think that people need to know if they're having an experience that seems different from their friends and colleagues' experience, then it's probably a good idea to look at their own past history because a past history of some kind of traumatic event can be completely different from what this looks like, uh, uh, some experience or the trauma you feel around COVID or seeing people die or having loved ones die or losing your job or all that. But I always go back to what did you tell yourself with that early trauma that happened to you in your life? I have a client right now who um, had, we don't need to go into the details, but she had some early trauma growing up, but then she also has trauma of all of her, both of her brothers, her father and her mother have all died in the last couple three years. And so then COVID comes, you know, and um, it's what you tell yourself. And if you, I ask people, go back and look at what did you tell yourself during that event? And you and I talked about, you know, um, how you can tell things to yourself like, oh, don't get so cocky. You thought everything was fine. And then you got into this situation where you had this traumatic event. That could be one. So maybe people are doing the same thing when it comes to this, and maybe they're doing it being afraid, like they're not going to be the ones, don't be too cocky, even though you have a mask, even though you're vaccinated, don't go out there. Um, so always what we tell ourselves, it's, it's not the event, we can't go back and change the event, but we can go back and look at what were the messages you gave yourself during previous events, and are, you, are those messages, are you somehow consciously or unconsciously giving yourself those same messages today. That is a really helpful way to look at things. It is, it is pretty powerful when we think about the messages we tell ourselves from our younger self and also how much they stick in time of trauma. So, and just, just to give listeners an example of what you and I are talking about. So you've known me for many, many years and a lot of people know me and 25 years ago, I was in a very, very serious accident. I was on a fourth floor balcony that collapsed 42 feet to the concrete, right? Living in San Francisco, that's what happened. Mm. For listeners can't see, but Carolyn just went, Yee! and she's heard this story many times. <laughs> the interesting thing is, is that when, and you, and, and I said this earlier, I remember the day of the accident. I had been living in San Francisco for a year and a half. And I was walking up the hill, just coming from a friend's house. We, and first of all, this is the funniest thing. This is the days when I used to smoke cigarettes. We were like smoking cigarettes and drinking tea oh all day God. in her little gazebo <laughs> in the backyard. And I was like, this is it. I finally made a life for myself in San Francisco. I feel grounded. I feel like I have my own group of friends. I, Carolyn, I remember what sweater I was wearing. I remember where I was on California and Laguna. I remember all of it. That night I had the accident and I actually internalized, and this is what you were trying to say earlier, I felt like I was getting too cocky. For me, and I'm not going to speak for everyone, for me, but it is pretty common, it's easier to blame self during a trauma than be afraid that the rest of the world is unsafe. So I internalized yeah. it. I did something, I got too cocky. 
How dare you get so happy? How dare you feel so confident? How dare you feel? Something had to stop you. And one of the things that I struggled with this past year, and I, I want to be very careful when I say this, is that I didn't have a very difficult year during COVID. Um, and, and I want to be really respectful of anybody who is listening to this, who has lost somebody, who has been impacted in any way. So please, you, you all have my love and respect. I was very grateful. No one in my family got sick. I was able to work from home. I, you know, I, it was for a bad situation. I navigated through it. And about a month ago, I got this panic of right back from 25 years ago. And I had a trauma response that. Yeah really threw me for a loop. And all I kept thinking was, you're too cocky, Karen. Something's going to happen. You're going to get COVID even though, you know, whatever. I can't believe you are getting so proud. You know, don't be so happy about things. So it was a combination of feeling guilt for feeling good and then also feeling fear that things were feeling good. Now, that has nothing to do with the balcony collapsing 25 years ago. Exactly. But this is why I... Yeah, this is why I tell people, if you're really having a difficult response, it's good to look at past messages you've told yourself that might be like current messages you're telling yourself, and to talk to somebody about that and work through that, and then find, what would I say to somebody else who said that? So you can start actually changing the message, which we really can do. We can... Because how we would talk to somebody else is different than how we would talk to ourselves. And this is just like the eating disorder work, you know, how the healthy self can come out for other people, but it doesn't come out for us. And what you would tell someone else to eat, or would you tell someone else to go like a child to go throw up a piece of pizza if they ate it because they're going to get fat? It's the same thing. All those skills that are talked about a lot in the Eight Keys book are applicable to not just eating disorder thoughts, but all kinds of other thoughts. And that's how we can begin to change it. And and ultimately that helps change our physiology as well. Because as you know, when you have a, a, a trauma response that's connected to some old stuff, it's a visceral, you feel it in your body. And, um, and, and it also helps to talk about what you're feeling in your body and to try and say, I'm, you know, those are my, my emotions are the way my body is responding to thoughts. You know, that's what an emotion is. It's the body's response to some thought, whether it's conscious or sometimes it's subconscious. And how can I work on just the emotion part, but the thoughts over here, how do I change that in my body right now? If I'm anxious, how do I, can I do breathing exercises to calm down? You know, that, People don't realize how much changing your physiology helps ultimately change how your cognitions, you know, they always think of it the other way around. People also don't realize how much active work goes into this self-care process to help, help self move forward and that you can one of the things or one of the many things that got me through this. So I was experiencing this for weeks and 
I was very tearful. I was very tired. I felt like somebody had died in my life. I, I, I was grieving. And I think I was grieving the fact that I had, didn't feel safe anymore in the world. So, and there's, so, there are a few things that I utilize, by the way, not one of them was an eating disorder behavior, right? There was not an eating disorder behavior on this planet that was going to move me through this trauma experience that I was having. I had to sit through it and honor it. I cried a lot. I listened to my body when it was tired. I also recognize, and I think this is an important thing, even for anybody, there were a few days where I would start feeling better and then I would go back to feeling really bad about things again. And I kept saying to myself, okay, but I have evidence that I'm gonna start feeling better because I felt it, I felt better three days ago. I went down, but I know I can pull myself. And you reached out to, to people you knew and professionals. I reached out to everyone and I, you know, and this is, and so taking care of self through a trauma is work. But again, there was not, a, there, there was never enough laxatives, which I abuse laxatives in my eating disorder. There was no laxatives that were going to take care of this trauma. Well, this is why I say, you know, yeah, absolutely. That's because you're recovered and you know what a big deal I've made about being recovered. And it doesn't mean that things don't happen and that it doesn't mean that we can have problems and cry and feel anxious and, you know, all the thoughts that you had that are, are problems. That's a, well, that's a problem, but not resorting to eating disorder behaviors is what at some point when you're recovered, that just becomes a no go. That's just it. We don't even, it doesn't even cross our mind to do that anymore. So that's the thing. There are all kinds of other ways we learn how, how to deal with it. And I, I brought up reaching out because I think it's such an important one. And, you know, uh, getting advice from people that you trust and whether it's a, a doctor or a good friend or whatever. And, uh, uh, I had a bit of, I'm not even going to go into what happened to me, but I had a bit of a, of a whole issue where I found myself having a hard time going to sleep, worrying, it was really worrying about the world, um, all that was going on. We also had a very tumultuous and uh, election where people were very polarized and, you know, um, and, and I think I did all those things that you did. And I think that's why there's a level of when uh, somebody out there is struggling with this, there's a uh, acceptance factor that I want them to have first and foremost about that. Th this is not that unusual. This is, you know, part of what happens to people, even people who don't have trauma histories have had a lot, a lot of struggle with what's going on, but add that to the mix. And I think you have to um, really give yourself some compassion if you're going through that, because it makes sense. If someone like you and I can have some response like this where we need to reach out for help, then I can only imagine um, the suffering that's happened to people that's different one from what we normally hear about, losing the job and losing a loved one and going to the hospital. There's all this other underlying suffering that's going on. And this is also where you and I have said to people, like I, I've had so many supports that have said to me, you know, when I was working, like when I was working for you at Montanito, that would be like, you know, can you fix my, say, 
daughter, son, loved one, whatever put it is, change them so they're not so sensitive. And I said, no, I say, no, I can help them though, learn how to navigate by being through, through life as a sensitive person. You and I will always be very sensitive people. I'm a very sensitive human being. I was before my eating disorder, definitely during, and I am now again. So I can't change that, but I can change what I do with it. And that's exactly, that's exactly it. And I don't, I don't try to hide it anymore. When I was in my eating disorder and even before, I hid the fact that I was so sensitive because I used to get teased by, about it. Guess what? It's who I am. I now own it. So when I do reach out for help, people aren't like, why are you being so sensitive? Like they know me, they understand, okay, this is what Karen needs right now. You know, I, you, you know, this is a big part of what I came to in terms of treating people, in terms of taking your, and we tr talked about this on the fir your first show a little bit, traits as liabilities versus assets. And uh, we aren't going to get rid of our traits. And I think embracing them and turning them into assets. So sensitivity can be, you know, it, it's such an important trait. And, and it can also be our Achilles heel and get in the way. And with everybody, whether their trait is, you know, someone may call you impulsive, but that's the kind of friend. And I always talk about about our 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 mutual friend, uh, Francie White, who's way more impulsive than I am. You know, I'm way more, you know, live my life kind of trying to be more controlled. But but I call her, you know, spontaneous, not impulsive. She's so spontaneous. And I may have even brought her up on the first show um, because I always talk about the difference in our temperaments, but how we um, can acknowledge those as good things. She's also got me to do things that I would, wouldn't have done or just spontaneously change course, you know, doing something when I, I would have thought, no, we haven't planned that out yet, you know? And uh, I, think, I think this is what this time and this year of COVID, I think people have begun to look at things, I hope they have, in ways that what are their traits that they have been able to put to good use during this time that maybe they didn't pay attention to beforehand? Maybe they weren't noticing. And I think you have probably talked about this maybe with other guests or with your own friends about how some things I think are changed forever. Uh, there are some things that are changing here that are that are going to be unique in the world. Just how how therapists do sessions. Now this kind of way to do sessions is much more acceptable. Whereas before, many of us would have thought, I don't, I can't do therapy on Zoom, you know. So there are things that are are changing. Things to look at uh, on the good side. Yeah, I don't want people to. <laughs> I don't want people to listen to this and say that was a downer talk. I want there are really some interesting things. Where do you sift something for its gold? And just like someone who develops an eating disorder, we wouldn't wish that on anybody. But when we are working with them, what we try to do is, where do you sift this for the gold? How has this become your teacher? And I think this whole thing with the pandemic, uh, uh, one of the ways we can help look at it is, what, what has it taught us? One of the things is, you know, if you feel like hugging somebody, do it because it might be a year before you get to do it again. <laughs> right. 
But I, I think that's the most important thing when you said, what did you learn from this? And I'll, I'll tell you why. Going back to my accident, which is really funny. I don't know if I've ever talked about it on this podcast and now I'm like using it all the time. People, I think one of the reasons why I internalized that this happened because I did something like I got too comfortable in my life. So I had to be stopped because I did hear people say things to me like, you know, well, maybe you were going around down a wrong path or, well, you could have, you might've been injured even more if this accident, like people said some of the strangest things to me. And then somebody said to me, what, what are you going to take from, what do you want to take from this, Karen? It's happened. You have a choice. I'm, she was like, I'm not invalidating it, but what do you want to take? And I thought that was like one of the first times I ever took a comfortable breath when someone just said it to me like that. And, and I don't know. This is a spiritual principle. You know, this is goes along with the, you know, acceptance versus resistance and not being attached to the results. And that doesn't mean you, you don't care and you're don't, you can't cry and be unhappy that something happened, but ultimately it's not what happens to us. It's what we make of what happens to us that really makes us or breaks us, which I'm certainly don't wish anything bad on anybody. But once something has happened, we have two ways to deal with it. We accept what's happened, try to learn from it, see what lessons, you know, whatever. Uh, or we stay in resistance and anger and upset and fear. And I think if there's anything for maybe listeners to take away, it's maybe do some little, some reading on, on people who write about acceptance versus resistance. I mean, I have it in the, in the eight keys book, but there's a lot of citations in there for other authors that I've, uh, Buddhist writers, for example, because it is a spiritual principle. And what does that mean? That doesn't mean it's religious. It just means it, it, it's, it transcends our normal ego state where we're fighting things and resisting things and this shouldn't happen to me and you know that kind of thing i always recommend the book um when things fall apart yeah i was looking at that right before i came on today yeah, and, and i never know how to say her name pema chandron chodron i chodron yeah pema chodron i i'm telling you that book is uh and that's an inspiring book because it does talk about you have to go through it. You have to look at it, understand it, be curious about it, like whatever it is. Yeah. she. Well, she's a Buddhist monk, and that's a very big uh, a, a part of the Buddhist philosophical tenet, that it's really what you make of what happens. Why is it that two people, I always say this, two people can experience a... a, a Let's say it's a, a, a pretty bad burglary or robbery or something like that. And one person, you know, goes on to talk about and give speeches, you know, about how to protect yourself. And somebody else ends up in some treatment program somewhere. There's and I'm not just blaming it on the person. How we what we tell ourselves and what we make in an event, and this goes back to how we started talking this morning has a lot to do with what's happened to us in the past and what we made of events in the past and what we told ourselves in the past. So I don't want people to feel bad if like, oh, I'm the one who had such a bad reaction and then feel bad about themselves. 
No, it's you always get a chance. We always get a chance to learn from it and turn it around and say, oh, I used to think this way, but now I've realized this. I mean, I used to, because of my sensitivity like you, I used to take things a lot worse and get a lot more upset. I still don't like being criticized. You know, I won't like if anybody writes in and say they hated this podcast. You know, I'll get all upset about it. But I'm way better at what that means in terms of my self-evaluation and what that means about any behaviors I might make. So I think it's it's this um, oh this this growth curve I think where we can learn that whole process of acceptance versus resistance and how we can um, not being attached to the results is like learning how to take things it's a little bit like the serenity prayer you know how to change the things i can and accept the things i can't kind of thing and also i think what people don't i don't know if i want to say they don't recognize but staying in resistance through eating disorders substance abuse whatever it is that you're you're using to numb out or that will keep you trapped in the suffering. It will not, there is not an eating disorder behavior or enough substances to actually make the suffering go away. It might numb it, but it stays stuck. And then you have two sufferings. I have the original one and now I have the one that I have this eating disorder, you know? So yeah, I, it's, it is interesting asking people, how did that help? How did that binge help? How did that purge help? How did taking those laxatives help and trying to find out what it is that and being very specific about it, because sometimes what people will end up saying is that even now they might resort to those behaviors and it's not even helping at all. It's become habitual. And that is a really important thing to look at, because, you know, sometimes I I get past asking people what triggered you. Because sometimes people aren't even triggered anymore. It's homeostatic. They're just doing the behaviors as this habitual way of living in their life. And I think it's really important to separate out, are there triggers or do you have this habitual rituals that you do? Because how we treat that and how you look at that are, are two different two different things. Yeah. Is there something in in particular that you would talk about with, with a client if they said it was sort of more habitual or if you noticed it was more habitual? Yeah, then I start look, working very behavior mod, which I kind of am anyway, but I start looking at, we don't want to then look at what are the underlying issues, what triggered that behavior. A lot of pe people, especially young new therapists, really start trying to help people what triggered you to binge? Well, a lot of times, as you know, the person just get home, gets home at night and they've been so used to binging. And I think this pattern is probably exacerbating during COVID and they um, just start binging. And so I would start setting up little um, behavioral tricks for uh, tricks. I don't know if that's the right word, but okay. So here's what I want you to do before you walk in the house. I want you to text me and say, I'm walking in the house with the intention not, not to binge. You have to start going the opposite. You have to start being uh, on the offense rather than I'm going to defend if a thought or a trigger comes up. You're on the offense just thinking it's going to come up. And so setting these parameters, putting a post-it note on your mirror, 
transitional objects. And you know, I'm big on that where I'll give a client, for me, it's rocks, because I like rocks, but something to hold, something to have, um, something to remind them. And you know, uh, this is an old, overtold story, but my favorite use for it is the client who put it on the back, you know, of her, of her toilet on the tank. So every time she went in the bathroom there, she said, there you were, you know, sitting on the toilet. Transitional object is something that just helps snap you out of something. It helps remind you of it's, um, well, the original transitional object was from attachment work with kids. So uh, a bottle was a transitional object from the breast or a pacifier. And so basically when you use it in therapy, it's just to help the person who might be in a zone, like I'm gonna go purge. And there's a reminder that keeps you connected to the therapeutic work, to me and the work that you're doing. But since I can't be in your bathroom, you know, but a post-it note can serve as a transitional object for that matter, you know. It also interrupts the process. And interrupting the process doesn't always guarantee that it's going to, that you are not going to do a behavior, but even an interruption and a pause makes you think, and it may reduce it a little bit. Yeah, it's a step in the right direction, which is why I said I become way focused on behavioral stuff when things are so habitual. Um, I'll even do that reward consequences thing where I'll ask somebody, if someone's really, really motivated to get better, we have a really good relationship, they trust me, that's when I'll use that reward consequence thing where I'll say, you know, at the, I know you really want to stop this, you come here saying you really would like to stop binging or binging and purging or whatever it is, and you just it's become so habitual, you can't do it. And, you know, thinking about I'd like to have kids one day, or, um, you know, any anything off in the in the future, um, like my labs might get off or whatever, isn't an immediate consequence. So in order to stop sometimes really habitual behaviors, you have to come up with something that is going to be more meaningful in the moment. So you've heard me say this, you know, so I try to find a thing that is worth it or a deterrent to the individual. And so we come up with all kinds of, I let the client come up with it. So what would stop you in the moment? Or I've had people, you know, ha having to give money to organizations that are, I just find something, what's really meaningful to you, and then say, okay, here's what we're going to do. Or I've had a client once, every time she binged and purged, she had to give me $5. So she'd come into the session, give me five bucks. And I put it in a jar that she could see every time she came. And when she had a week, she had to have a week free of binging and purging, and then she got the money back, you know, just interesting things but uh, you know i think outside the box but trying to come up with something where when a behavior has become habitual all we need is to start having relief from it for whatever reason to create those new neural pathways and once we start doing it once a client starts doing it and doing it a few times in a row those neural pathways get created and a new habit is formed. And, and then that becomes easier and easier. But to get them to break that very first time, and I explained to them this, 
obviously, if doing this cured eating disorders, then no one would need to see people like us. It's only when the person is at a point where they've already dealt with other issues, their motivation to get better is really high, but they find their, themselves trapped in this feedback loop of this habituation. And we know now because of brain neuroplasticity that the brain gets hardwired and puts events together. Like someone with anorexia who says to us in a session, yes, I'm gonna eat this. I'm gonna try this meal challenge. They sit down at the meal. And I always explain, it's a little bit like coming to the edge of a cliff. They have an immediate instinct and they back up almost, even if they can't really do it. And the, their whole body says no. And they're not exactly sure why that comes over them, but that is an ingrained response. And we as clinicians, all kinds of talk stuff isn't going to get over that. We have to have something we do. And sometimes, as you and I both know, because we've been in residential, it's leaning over and putting our hand on the person's hand or the person's shoulder and trying to pair a, a positive attachment or a positive experience with that event of eating the food. And that also can change things. You and I also know that the relationship with between therapist and client is critical. And it it's, this is why you and I, I feel from my perspective, are so human with our clients. Like we're not textbook. Here's a, here's a, 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 what is the word I'm looking for? Here's like an assignment. You do that. Blah, 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 blah. Like we do think outside of the box and think about how it would apply to that person. But it's also knowing your client, kind of, dare I say, having a little bit of fun in the process. Well, yeah, I let them come up with it. And sometimes they laugh, but they're like, ooh, but I don't really want to do that. And I say, well, you get to pick the one. And I, honestly, it really works, but you have to use it the right timing. And, and also, you're absolutely right. If I didn't have a good relationship, A, I couldn't do that kind of thing. It would seem like I'm trying to come up with a punishment. And B, reaching over and touching somebody on the shoulder or on the hand when they're struggling with a meal, that's not going to mean anything unless they feel good about you, unless they have a good relationship with you. And there, as you know, there's a lot of research now about the, the efficacy of a of the positive therapeutic relationship. It's like the number one predictor of who's going to get better. That's just, it doesn't really matter if it's what CBT, DBT, EFT, FBT, whatever it is, the, those, those models, in, unless there's a something else happening, people could just drop out of treatment with those models. Anyway, there's a lot of, I'm doing a talk at Renfrew on the therapeutic relationship this year, but of course it won't be at Renfrew, it'll be in my living room on Zoom, which is really sad because if you wanna talk relational, it's nice to have the audience, but yeah, they asked me to do a talk and it's some anniversary talk, I think. I don't know, Renfrew's been going for many years, but um yeah, I'm going to look at how, you know, over the years, and I and I also recently did, you're going to love this, Karen, I, for IADA. Yes. Did you see the, uh, the what lo, what's love got to do with it? I saw your talk. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You were there. Yes. I loved it. I loved it. And, and it is true, you know. We shy away from the L word, right? Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. 
I know, I know. And, and you and I, and, and forgive me, I keep saying you and I, again, I'll speak for myself. I, I do love my clients. I love my clients. I love their families. I love the work that we do. Like we're passionate about the work and we're passionate about healing and about people and about connection. And I think, I think. Yeah. Person first, patient second. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We're you. I always say this, like, I hate to say this, but we're, we're coming to, to a close soon, which, which makes me want to cry because you know, I'm a crier. (laughs) Well, yeah. And I'm not right. (laughs) But I want to ask you, and and this is going back to something you said, and and you may not be able to answer this, but what is something that you've taken from this year? What what have you learned? What did you sift through and find gold for such a challenging year? Pandemic, politics, racism. I mean, it's it's it, oh gosh, what have what have you? Okay, um, I can talk about one sort of activist one, and that is when I'm stuck at home watching all the the Black Lives Matter protests and all of that, I actually started thinking to myself, you know, I call myself, you know, I would say I'm not racist, I'm not prejudiced, but what am I doing to actively change the systemic racism? What am I doing to change the way it is in the world? And one of the things I did was I, um, and this was hard because to do it in the politically right way and, you know, you bumble around, but um, I, I put out a scholarship. I realized, why do I have no black coaches? I have Latino coaches. I even, I have lesbian coaches. I have transgender coaches. Why did I have no black coaches? So right now I have, uh, I put out the word and I did it to help with, uh, Project Heal's, um, you know, BIPOC initiative, and I have two um, black coaches now in training, and and it's also really cool because I have very few males, and um, and they, they, I have two black men who are studying to be eating disorder coaches now. So that's one thing I really did learn that no, I can't say I need to do something more uh, that is more proactive. And one thing I learned about um, about myself is I was really, you know, I was actually known for all these wild travels that I did, you know, like, you know, Antarctica and Irian Jaya and Bhutan and Tibet. And, you know, I'd like to go to these just wild places. And all those trips uh, got canceled. You know, I was off to Madagascar, got canceled. You know, uh, I was going to Kenya, got canceled. And so really it's been really an interesting year of being at home and trying to find this is going to sound silly but anyway try to find the exotic the magnificent the what are the what are the yeah those kind of places in my own community and 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 in my own world and in my relationship i mean really truly when you're going out there, you're looking for these exotic, interesting experiences. And I had to turn that inward and say, what am I, uh, and, and, and looking at my garden, looking at the flowers, um, the way the seasons change here where I live, um, hiking in just the local mountains, and what a pleasure. And honest to God, I can say, it's it's there have been some really cool things about 
you know, about looking at just what you can find in your own surrounding, whether it's, and, and I grew, started a vegetable garden and I had never done that. And it doesn't matter. It was just a few strawberries picking one off the thing and eating it and going, oh, wow, this tastes way better than a strawberry that's been trucked <laughs> from right? someplace. So there have been, and it's not that hard to do a little bit, even a, 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 a basil. I grew basil, you know, and, and putting that on tomato and mozzarella. There are tiny things that I would not have done had I kept my travel schedule and all that looking for it out there and the last one I would say is an interesting one and my family and I have come to this together because my nieces my nieces in their 20s were stuck at home with my sister here in Santa Monica they wanted a place to escape on the weekends and we would all be masked and socially distanced but I spent every weekend with them during the at least during the summer and we would have never done that and we developed a, a, a closeness and I learned so much more. I always thought we were close, but it, it definitely has made it so that I now call them more. I now, um, they call me more, you know, we do Zoom things like you and I are doing that has made uh, the connection just different and seem easier. And I'm sure we won't do as much zooming and all that, but I know that connections will be, I will keep this connection going in a way that, that I hadn't before. So those are three things that come to mind. Those are three really beautiful, amazing things. I mean, absolutely. And, and I, I think that, you know, I feel that the, the, places in my life where I grew during the pandemic, everything just became enhanced. And I didn't find anything new. I sort of found myself like parts of myself that just on my everyday life, walking to the office, seeing my clients, I just forgot about. And everything got enhanced. Relationships in my life, relationship with myself, relationship with my clients, like everything just enhanced. I think it would be really good for listeners if they want to take up this challenge to sit maybe and try to come up with a list of lessons. You know, I haven't really done that. I think I'll do it myself, but, you know, writing down what are the, and one of my clients just said to me, it was just yesterday I read something she wrote and she's the one who said the thing about, yeah, make sure that you hug people because you don't know when the next time. And isn't that interesting? Because I remember the first time I got to hug my sister or my nieces after it had been several months, you know, and what an interesting feeling that is. And you and I are huggers. So, you I know, know. <laughs> so writing down what are lessons that um, that you could take from this, because it is it has been a lot more devastating for other people. And you acknowledged that, too, earlier on. And I. I feel bad sometimes, you know, like kind of like the survivor's guilt that other people have had it so much harder than I have. And that's why I also have tried to contribute to different causes during this and, and all that. But I think even though I think all of us can try to figure out um, if we can, that's the sifting for its gold. What are some lessons that we can take from this, especially since in some ways 
it's starting to open up and what do you want to take with you and not forget about when things get and they're never going to be totally the same because we'll always have this information about what happened we will always have this experience but as things open up and people start traveling again and things like that um what are some things you want to take with you yeah carolyn you know how much i love you i just karen i I love you (laughs) i cannot believe it has been a year since my first episode and i just i can't thank you enough i can't thank you enough for being my first guest I can't thank you enough for being my one-year anniversary guest. Anniversary, and it's almost my wedding anniversary. So, yeah, it's a good anniversary celebration. It's a good anniversary celebration. And as I've said to you in the past, I can't thank you enough for being my mentor and my teacher and my supervisor and all the things that you have been to me. Oh, thank you, Karen. Wow. Carolyn, I've probably known you for like, 17 years wow so well since I've been around for so long (laughs) I mean it's weird I remember I used to be really proud I've been treating eating disorders for 10 years 15 years 20 years 30 years and all of a sudden when it got to like I've been treating them for 40 years I'm like I don't even want to write that down in my my little blurb for someone to say because I can't even imagine what people think that just seems so odd right does it seems odd to me how long I've been doing it for yeah all right before we get all mushy mushy thank you so much for having me Karen I'm so glad you're doing this and I love the title by the way I meant to tell you that before so great it's such a good service you've had some great people on too and who knows how long this is going to keep going it it has been such an honor for me I I have said time and time again I can't believe guests people like you, souls like you sitting across from me and still teaching me. I, I feel like I'm always being being taught. And for, gosh, you'll be like the, I don't even know, maybe the 60th guest. I don't even know what number wow. it's going to be. But I, I have had 60 amazing lessons so far from very beautiful, wise people. Wow. Yeah. So. Well, thanks for doing it. Yeah, but hang on there, sweetheart. I'm not letting you go yet. What? Oh, there's another question. Oh. Oh, no, no, no. You don't get off easy. Oh, I can talk and talk. So. Oh, I know. I know. But I have to ask one final question. And that question is, Carolyn, if someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? Oh, my God. What would it say or what would I want it to say? <laughs> You do either one, darling. It's all you. Well, oh God, you know, why do you have to make me cry? I got through this whole thing so crying. Because it wouldn't be you if we, and it wouldn't be an episode if you, you didn't get tearful. You know, I don't know. I mean, what I would want it to say, I think, is what I got the award for from Project Heal. A few years ago, they gave me this award for being fearlessly authentic. And, and honest to God, and I weeped when they gave it to me. I could hardly even hear what they were saying because I was weeping uh, because I really do try to be authentic. And from the moment I stood up and said to a crowd at IADEP 35 years ago, I'm recovered and you can be fully recovered. And it was a, 
and I end up was run by a 12 step organization. So it was, and I did it and I was afraid because people had told me the day before you're doing what you're going to say what, but I feel like that's such a good compliment because, um, and I'm not really fearless. I have fear, but I just do it anyway. You know, I had fear about opening Montanito, but uh, I did it. People said, oh, that's not going to, insurance isn't going to pay for it, blah, 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 you know? And even about doing this coaching thing, people said, you know, it's it's not recognized. It's not, you know, how you know the coaches anyway. So I think I would want people to say that, um, you know, Carolyn Costin, she was fearlessly authentic. I I, I kind of, kind of like that one so I hope that's what they write <laughs> yeah I do too I like that one as well and I can agree to that I can 100 percent. so Carolyn my love thank you so <laughs> thank much you. thank you all right everyone thanks for listening to another episode of recovery bites I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week stay safe and take care to wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week. <laughs>